working through uh, the book of Ephesians. We've gone through the first few verses of chapter 1, and uh, we're currently we're spending a couple of weeks on what a lot, of, uh, a lot of people have called the longest verse in the Bible. It's, um, what is it? it's like five or, six, uh, five or six verses. It's one long sentence. So Paul just kind of had verbal diarrhea when he was writing this down. He just kept on writing and writing and writing, and it's some amazing stuff. And what Paul is outlining in, uh, in these verses is the blessings that we have through Christ, the blessings that we have in the Holy Spirit. And so Mark actually, um, he, he got halfway through that sentence, and I, I don't think I've ever spoken before where um, I got to finish off a half a sentence from somebody. So it's kind of, I, it's a great way to t- tag team preach. So um, last week, Mark, uh, Mark talked about some, uh, some good stuff. Um, and I would encourage you, if, uh, if, if you weren't here last week, to download that sermon because there's a lot of really rich stuff in it. If you were here last week, I'd encourage you to download it as well because we could just go over and over and over these verses in Ephesians and get so much out of them, and I think it would really enrich our lives. So I'd encourage you to do that. And like Mark said, just continue to read through uh, Ephesians and follow along with us as we're working through it. Um, last week, Mark spoke from verses 3 to 8, and he talked about a number of really key blessings that we have. He talked about the fact that God has a plan for us, that uh, he didn't create us, and they just kind of leave us to go our own way and wallow in our sin. From the beginning of time, God had a plan for us. He was the author of our salvation. He didn't just come up with it on the spur of the moment and say, hey, I got a plan, and or, I'm going to come up with a plan because they've screwed up pretty bad. He had a plan from the beginning of time, from before we were born, and his plan has been in place all that time. Isn't that amazing? He had a plan for us. He had a plan to bring us to himself through Christ Jesus. He also talked about the fact that we've been adopted, and Carol got it right on. We've been adopted, and when we're adopted, we become a part of the family of God. It's not just a, a a name that we have. It's not just a tag on. It's not just a label. We actually become part of that family, and we have all the authority that comes through the Holy Spirit and that, that Jesus Christ would have had. We have authority because of that salvation or that adoption. He also talked about the fact that Christ redeemed us, and I think it's really important to grab a hold of that fact that the idea of redemption is that He paid the full price for our sins. There is not a sin that he didn't pay for. And because he did that, we can give it all over to him. It's all already been done for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn that redemption. It's been done. All we have to do is accept it. And so uh, we're going to carry on from there. But before we do, I, uh, I just want to share kind of a little, I don't know. It's uh, a little, have you, has anybody heard of Obamacare? You've probably all heard of Obamacare. It's been in the news for like weeks and weeks. It, it shut down the, uh, the U.S. government. You've heard of the U.S. government shutdown that happened a couple of weeks ago. It was all because the Senate didn't agree with, um, with what Obama had, uh, the bill Obama had passed on, on health care in the United States. And so there's a senator who obviously doesn't agree with Obamacare, and she wrote this speech, and, um, and I'm going to read a little. It's a description of what Obamacare is in her um, in her view, and I want you to listen to it and see if you can figure out what is similar in that speech to the passage that we've been working through. All right? So this is what she had to say. We're going to be gifted with a health care plan that we were forced to purchase and find if we don't. 
which, hardly, or which reportedly covers 10 million more people without adding a single new doctor, but provides for 16,000 new IRS agents. Written by a committee whose chairman doesn't understand it, passed by a Congress that didn't read it, but exempted themselves from it, and signed by a president who smokes, with funding administered by a treasury chief who didn't pay his taxes, for which we will be taxed for four years before any benefits take effect, by a government which has bankrupted Social Security and Medicare, all to be overseen by a Surgeon General who is obese and financed by a country that is broke. Doesn't that sound like a great system? It actually is. I think it's a really good system. But do you see any similarities between that description of Obamacare and the description that Paul gives us of the blessings that we have in Christ in Ephesians 1, 3 to, 3 to 14? No similarities. There is one glaring similarity. It's both that they're one big, long sentence. <laughs> one huge, long sentence. Both of them had verbal diarrhea, and they were just going on and on and on. Um, I don't know why I shared that with you. I just thought it would tie it in. So a lot of people have called this the passage that Paul wrote the longest sentence in, um, some people say it's the longest sentence in history, but I actually Googled some, and there are some really, really long sentences out there. So uh, let's, if you can open your Bible, if you brought your Bible with us or on your iPod or iPhone or whatever you have with you, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, um, 9 to 14. But I want to go back because this is all one long sentence. It all kinds of ties together. And I want to read from verse 3. So Ephesians is uh, towards the back of your Bible. Um, it's about four-fifths of the way in. We're going to look at the first, uh, again, at the first chapter, verses 3 to 14. And this is what Paul says. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear child. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with, his, with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything, uh, bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything on heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he, ch he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose is that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. 
So the, the, the next blessing that we're going to look at is found in verse 9, and it's the blessing that God has revealed his plan to us. He's revealed his will to us. This is what verse 9 says. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. So if we look back at, uh, at earlier on in this, uh, in this long run-on sentence, he said, Paul says in 4 and 5, he kind of reveals that plan a little bit to us in, in more detail. It's kind of odd that he would reveal it first and then say God's revealed his plan. But this is what he says. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So the plan that God revealed to us is this. First of all, when God made us, he loved us. And because he loved us, he chose to make us holy and without fault in his eyes through Jesus Christ. That was all a part of his plan. He decided to redeem us. He knew that we were going to screw up. He knew that was going to mar our relationship with him. And he decided to redeem us, to pay the full price for for our, our messing up, the full price that we can't pay ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And he decided to adopt us, to make us a part of his own family, to make us... Uh, equal to Jesus Christ when it comes to this, our standing in front of God, to make us his own children and uh, through his son. And the amazing thing about his plan is he didn't do it. Um, he didn't do it just because he felt sorry for us. He didn't do it just because he felt pity on us. He made that plan before we even managed to screw up. He had that plan in mind as a backup plan. And he did it all because it was his good pleasure. God wasn't, wasn't sitting there thinking, Oh, look at those humans. They've screwed up again. They're so stupid, and they just can't get it right. That wasn't what he was thinking. He was thinking, I want to be reunited with those people. I want to be reunited with my kids, and it will give me great pleasure to do that. You know how sometimes um, you have, we, have, we probably all have those friends who dig themselves into a deep hole, and then they'll give us a call and say, can you help me out? And as we're helping them out, we think, oh, my goodness, can't they get it right? Can't they just get it right? And so we help them, and we, you know, we try to help them get it right. That's not what, Jesus, or what God does for us. God does it because it gives him great pleasure, and he had a plan in advance to redeem us. Remember the story of, uh, of the prodigal son? It's um, a story that Jesus told in the New Testament. And it's the story of this man, this wealthy man who had two sons. And one of his sons, before this man died, decided, you know what, I'm gonna go, I, I want to go out on my own. I want to have a good time. I want to party it up. And so I'm going to ask my father for my inheritance in advance. Basically, I'm saying to my father, you're dead in my sight. I want to live my own life and take off and be separate from you. And so the father gave him his inheritance, and this man went, and he blew it on partying and living and, you know, just living the good life. And before long, he had no more money. And uh, he ended up having to get himself a job, and the only job he could get was working for a pig farmer. And he got to the point where, you know, he was eating, he was tempted to eat the pig food with the pigs. That's how low he was. Um, And so he decided, you know what, I'm in such a bad shape that I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to beg, kneel up, get on my knees and beg for him to take me back. And and I'll even work as a servant for him because I know that I've really messed things up with him. And so he goes back and and, and the story tells us that even before he got to his father, his father was standing in the field and watching and saw him and ran to him and embraced him. He gave him a cloak to put on his back. 
He gave him a ring to put on his finger, and that ring was significant because it meant that he, had, that he was a part, uh, restored as a part of the family. And so that man, uh, the, the dad, ended up throwing a huge party for him and restoring his son back into his family. Not because he had to. He could have just accepted his son's, um, his son's offer of, of uh, you know, to forgive him and, uh, and made him work as a slave. But the father accepted him and brought him back in his family because it gave him great joy to be reunited with his son. And that's how it is with God. When we come to him, his plan to, to redeem us gave him great pleasure. Jeremiah um, <clears throat> 29 talks it. So that was God's plan for us as, as people but, um, and, it, and for redemption. But Jeremiah 29 also talks about God's plan for us um, in everyday life. And this is what Jeremiah 29, 29 11 says. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So Jeremiah was writing this to a group of, of uh, Jewish people who were living in exile and captivity in Babylon. So they were separate from the rest of their people. They were living in, in captivity. They were living a pretty crappy life at this point in time. And he says, even though you're in this horrible situation, God has a plan for you. And there, it's a good plan to give you a hope and a future. Regardless of this situation that you find yourself in, God has a plan to give you a hope and a future. And you know what that plan was? It's actually a really simple plan, and I think it's a very similar plan to what God has for each of us. He said, build homes for yourselves. Put down roots for yourselves in this place where you are. I know it's a crappy situation, but this is where you are, and this is where I want you to be right now. Plant gardens. You're in this place, and it seems pretty crappy, but I want you to make yourself useful. I want you to make yourself useful and do some practical things in your life that will help make your life better. He goes on to say, find spouses and have children and grandchildren. So you're not just setting down roots and building a house made out, of, uh, made out of sticks that you can abandon. I want you to set down firm roots. I know you're in this situation, but I want you to set down roots, and this is going to be your hope in your future. And work for the welfare of the city you're in. These people are holding you captive, but I want you to work for the welfare of the city you're in because that will bring blessing on them and bring blessing on you. Basically, what God is saying to these people is live your life where you find yourself and live it well. Isn't that a message that we could all take into our everyday lives? Live your life where you are and live it well. Some of us are, you know, we have pretty horrible things going on in life and our situations may not be the best. And we might think, what am I going to do? God tells us what his plan is for us. He says, put down your roots, build a family, and be productive. Raise your family to know God. Interact with your neighbors in a way that they can see God through you. And work for the welfare of the place where you live, whether it's where you live, where you work, where you play, where you go to school. Work for the welfare of those places. And believe it or not, that is all a part of God's plan and God's will for your life. And I think um, when we're faithful in the everyday things, living, um, living our life in the place that God has put us in, being in constant communication with him, looking for where he's at work around us, looking for neighbors that are in need and asking God how we can bless them, uh, getting to know God better through his word and yielding constantly, yielding our hearts and our lives to him. 
looking, looking for ways that God's at work around us, God will reveal more and more of his specific plan for your life. So those are things that all of us should be doing. There are things that God specifically wants us to do. And it may not be something huge and something, uh, you know, it might not be the extraordinary thing. Um, and maybe something extraordinary for some of us. But God does have a plan for us to live and to love those around us and to follow him in the everyday things of life. So uh, Paul goes on to say in verses 10 to 13 that another blessing is that God, that we have a, a planned inheritance through God. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. So those verses tell us that everything is under the authority of Christ. God has brought everything under the authority of Christ. And I think one of the hardest things for most people is to let other people have control of our lives, right? Is we all have those, you know, we, nobody wants to be completely under somebody else's control. We want to be able to say that, that we have some control in our own lives. We'd like to be in control. So when it comes to following Christ, uh, I think this is probably one of the biggest struggles that followers of Christ have is fully surrendering, coming under the authority of Christ, letting Christ have complete control in our lives. But the thing is, Christ redeemed us. He paid the full price for our sins, all of our sins, not just the sins that we've done in the past, sins that we do today, the sins that we've done in the future. Christ has already paid for all of those. So what does that mean? It means that there's Nothing that we can do but surrender all of our sins over to Christ. But I think a lot of us actually have a, a hard time with that. Probably most of us here have at least one thing in our lives that we really struggle with that, keeps, that we keep mulling over and over again in our, in, our, in our minds. The one thing that we say, I think that's just too big. I'm not sure that God can, that God can forgive me of that. You know, he can forgive most of my sins, but I'm not quite sure about that one. We keep coming back to it. Uh, we feel unable to move beyond something in our past because of shame or because of guilt or convictions or condemnation. And that condemnation that comes in is not condemnation from Christ. It's condemnation from Satan. He wants us to feel condemned and not give those things over to Christ. God's forgiven you, though, and if you're in Christ... You are completely forgiven. But some of us say, I just can't forgive myself, which sometimes we think sounds, you know, kind of cute for some of those things, but really, it's wrong. Because we're, what we're essentially saying is that God forgives me. The God of all creation who's made this plan to redeem me forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. If you think about that, where does that put us in relation to God? Sometimes I think if we, if we just obsess a little bit more about our sin, God will be pleased with us. But that's not God's plan for us. God's plan for us is that Christ would have authority over our lives, would have authority over every part of our lives. And that means surrendering everything to Christ. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, did any of us 
did any of us, when we came to Christ, come to him at a point where we thought, I got it all together. The only other thing I can do is, is give my life to Christ. Did we, ever come, did, we come to, did we come to Christ and we thought, you know what? Everything's honky-dory, so I'm going to give my life to Christ because, you know, what more can I do? That's not the point. I don't think that if we're honest, that's the point that any of us were at in our lives. We all had something that we needed to give over to Christ. We were all probably at a point where we thought that there was something that was missing and we needed something to make our life complete. And the only thing that could do that is, is being forgiven and redeemed to God through Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today and you consider yourself a, a follower of Christ, it's probably because you're at, you were at a point where you recognized that you couldn't do it on your own. Because you recognized that without him you were incomplete. So what I want to ask you is, has that changed for you? It, it hasn't changed. We still need Christ to make us whole because we're going to blunder. We're going to mess it up along the way. And Christ has already paid for that. He's already redeemed that. We still need him to continuously make us whole. We all need daily and hourly and minute-by-minute minute help from the Holy Spirit to make it through most of our days. And so it shouldn't be that hard for us to, to allow Christ to have complete authority in our lives. But some people would say, if I let Christ have full authority in my life, then I'm nothing more than an automaton, a robot. It removes my free will. And, and that's, some, that's, that's what some people have. I have a problem with, uh, with verse 11 where it says, Paul says that God chose us in advance. Or some translations put it, that God predestined us as his children. Mark did a really great job of, of describing um, the whole idea of predestination last week, how God predestined us through the plan that he set in place through his son, through Jesus Christ. He predestined to adopt us. And I would encourage you again to go back and listen to that because it's a really great explanation of what God has done for us. But sometimes people get all out of whack over this, this idea of predestination. And there's, there's theologians who, you know, they've split the church because some of them believe one thing about predestination and some believe another, and it's made such a huge rift in, in the church. And um, really, um, th they struggle with the concept because they feel that they would no longer have choices in their lives. But I like to think of this whole idea of predestination more as a matter of design. We were all designed, created to be and to do something specific. Now, um, if you think about uh, a train, a locomotive, it was designed to run on a set of railroad tracks, right? It was designed to run along those tracks. And when a train does that, we know that it's doing what it was designed to do. Now, a train doesn't just run, a locomotive doesn't just run on the track, and it's just the locomotive running on the track. A train can pull a huge load of, of cargo. It can pull a livestock. It can carry people. It can go north and south and east and west, and it can go all different routes. Um, and when it does that, it's doing what it was designed to do. But a train can also jump off the tracks. There's nothing to say that a train can't jump off the tracks, but when it does that, what happens? Nothing good. It's not doing what it was designed to do. None of us, uh, when a locomotive runs on the tracks, is that a bad thing? None of us would say that's a bad thing. It's just doing what it was designed for. Today, one of the, um, the best arguments against the theory of evolution is the theory of intelligent design. 
And the theory of intelligent design is pretty much what it sounds like. But some scientists would dismiss it because uh, they, they don't want us to hear, um, to hear this theory. They want us to continue to believe in evolution. But the idea is this. If something appears to have detail in it, if something appears to have order and structure and function a, a, according to a certain, uh, a certain way, then it must have been designed to do that. It seems to make sense. It's kind of like this. If, um, if, we went to, if we went to outer space, we're living in the future, and we went to outer space, and we went to another planet, and um, we got to that other planet, and we discovered a bookshelf with books on it, and we started to read those books, and they actually made sense to us, we would probably think, you know what? There was probably an author who wrote that book. There is a design behind that book. Wouldn't that make sense? Would anybody disagree with that? No, there's intelligent design there. Now, the same thing can be said for everything that we see on Earth. We don't look at an automobile and say, that automobile has evolved through over millions of years to become this very structured, fine working piece of, of uh, machinery. Nobody would say that. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same with animal life. There are millions of functional parts in animal life that are all required to work together in order for that life to, to, to be able to live. It's the same for plant life. If a plant doesn't have all of the necessary elements for it to survive, it's not going to live, it's not going to thrive, it's not going to grow. It's, same, it's the same for human life. If we don't have all of our human parts, every single cell that is meant to be in our body, functioning properly, then things, we don't survive and things don't go right. Even just a small part of our body, like the eye, there are millions of intricate parts in the eye. If one small part isn't working right, the eye doesn't work. We're blind. There's obviously clearly intelligent design behind that. And uh, we were designed from the beginning not to just see, not to just walk, not to just talk. We were designed for a very specific purpose. When God created Adam and Eve, his design for them was to be in communion with him. He designed them for his good pleasure, to be in a relationship with him. That is what we were predestined for, to be in relationship with God. And so God has a, a plan for us, a plan that, um, that we would be redeemed to him and that our relationship would be made right with him. And honestly, it's, uh, if we think about it, if we think about the fact that his plan is for us to be in relationship with him, and we need to give authority over to, over to Christ so that we can be uh, in a proper relationship, it's silly of us not to give authority over to Christ. How many, um, and, and, so, and so that's what we do. We find our place, um, and, and we sit, uh, sorry, and uh, we, we find our relationship with God, and we're made right with him. And, um, and as a result of that, we, we're, <laughs> we're following God's purpose for our lives. And, uh, and as we look back to the original account of when God created humanity, it was, it was simply for us to walk and to talk with him. And so we're designed, when we're, when we're following God's design for us and we're in relationship with him, we are the best possible versions of ourselves. We're the best possible versions. We're doing what we were designed and predestined to do. So our plan, the plan that God revealed to us, is that we would be reunited to him through Christ and continue to grow closer to him and more towards who he wants us to be 
through the Holy Spirit that he sent to us. So verses 13 and 14 go on to talk about the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he purchased us to be his own people. He did so. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Have you ever watched a, a historical movie where, um, where one of the characters writes a letter, and then they drip some wax on the letter, and then they use a seal to stamp that letter? And let me clarify this, because I was talking about this last night, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, the first dozen times you said the word seal, I wasn't sure why you were putting a on a letter. So we're not talking about that kind of a seal. We're talking about a seal that is like a stamp, that's an official stamp that goes on something, just so we're all clear about that, okay? Because I don't want to... These people giggled and laughed through the rest, of, the rest of the sermon when I talked about a seal. We're talking about a seal that is used to officially stamp something. So I've watched these movies, and I've, I've seen these scenes where they put a stamp on something, and I've always been intrigued by those stamps for some reason. And every time I go into a stationery store, I'm drawn to those wax stamps. And I think they're just the coolest thing. It takes a really great amount of self-control for me over the years to not have bought one. But I'm really glad that most of our letters are written now on email or text or tweets, and I don't have to worry about the official stamp. Does anybody know what the official seal is for a tweet or text or email? No, I don't think there is one. I'd be curious to see. But a seals were, were used for, for many different purposes in ancient times. We don't use them much today. Um, but they would, they, would, they would have had great purposes um, back in ancient times. They were used um, on invoices to authenticate a transaction. So a transaction was done. When it was completed, it would be stamped, and there would be a seal put on it. And so we have that term, seal the deal, because we've sealed the deal with a stamp. Even today, sometimes attraction, uh, or an interaction will be embossed with a seal. If you buy a house, um, sometimes it will be stamped with an official stamp on it. Um, they were often used to indicate ownership. So in Paul's day, merchants would go from, uh, from Rome, and they would go to Ephesus, and they would buy goods that they could take back to Rome and sell. And so when they did this, they would go and they'd take a huge crate with them, and they'd load all the stuff into the crate that they'd bought, and then they would take their stamp, their seal, you know, drip some wax on it, and they would seal that, uh, that crate. And then that, that crate would be put on a ship, in the port in, in uh, Ephesus and be sent back to the port in Rome. And the merchant's servant would go to that ship in the port and the servant would search and search and they would know what mer merchandise was that merchant's because that crate was stamped. So it served as a means of identification. Sometimes a seal would have been used for security purposes. So it would seal a letter closed or um, it would seal something of significance closed, much like police tape is used today to seal off a crime scene. You, you knew back then if there was a seal on something, on a crime scene or on a tomb, that if you broke into it, you were going to be in big trouble, much like when Christ was crucified. His tomb was sealed by the Roman officials so that nobody would go in and that it would deter grave robbers from trying to rob the grave because they knew they would be in big trouble. A seal was often used as a means of formally identifying the writer of a piece of correspondence to authenticate it. So we often forget that we live in a time where their literacy is at its highest levels ever. Um, up until the invention of the printing press, the vast majority of people couldn't read and couldn't write. And so what 
writers would do if they were writing something to a group of people is they would put their seal on it. And sometimes it was a stamp and sometimes it was just a coin that was attached to it that was their seal. And people would know then that that piece of, uh, of writing came from who they, it was said it was from. And they could take it seriously and they knew who the genuine sender was. And the Holy Spirit, the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit um, accomplishes each of these functions in our lives. The Spirit's seal upon us identifies us as genuine members of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit's an indication that we're prized possessions of God. The Spirit is the confirmation of the new covenant and that everything has been completed through Jesus Christ. It's a pledge that, and a guarantee that of all that we have in and through Jesus Christ. And so God has, has guaranteed his promises to us through the Spirit. But I think there's one other type of seal that, that I, I think best illustrates, or another illustration of, of the Spirit in our lives. And it, it comes from um, the Old Testament story of, of Joseph. And when Joseph um, was in captivity in Egypt, he was thrown into jail, and he met a couple of characters in the jail, and uh, they had dreams, and Joseph interpreted their dreams. And these characters were later um, released. Joseph stayed in prison, and, um, and the, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time had a dream, and he wanted it interpreted. And nobody in his court could interpret the dream. But one of these characters said to the pharaoh, you know, there's this guy in jail who interpreted a dream for me. And I think he might be able to do the same for you. So Joseph went, and he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, and it was so significant, it was a plan for the future, that the Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm going to put you in charge of this plan that I've had a dream about that you've interpreted for me. And I'm going to make you an authority in Egypt. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to give you my own cloak, and I'm going to give you my signet ring that is the seal of the pharaoh of Egypt. And that signet ring would have been just for that pharaoh. It would have been destroyed when that pharaoh died or buried with him. It would have been a unique uh, symbol of that pharaoh's authority and power. And, and Joseph, who had been living in prison, now had all of the authority of the pharaoh of Egypt. If Joseph said it, it was the same as if the pharaoh had said it. And so we see that, that, that this seal served as a sign of authority for Joseph, that he had all the power and authority of the, the, king, or the pharaoh of Egypt. And that is what the Holy Spirit does as a seal in our lives. The Holy Spirit acts as a seal that gives us all of the authority, all of the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. And so the amazing thing about being sealed with the Holy Spirit is that it brings with it not only an acknowledgement that we're genuine members of God's family, not only that we're God's prized possession, not only that we've been made new through Christ, not only does the seal of the Spirit preserve us and protect us from living in folly, it guides us and directs us so that we, we live a life that is, um, that is pleasing to God, but it also shows that we have all of the status all of the authority of being a child of Christ and all of the authority that comes with it. And the authority to come before God and speak with him one-on-one. -on -one. We no longer need a priest to come between us and God to be able to speak with him. In the Gospel of Mark, Christ says that there would be certain signs that, that follow those that believe. Signs that of, of our authority through the Holy Spirit. The authority to stand against Satan and the evil in this world. That's the authority that the Holy Spirit gives us. The authority to preach the gospel with power, to share the good news to others. The authority to minister in Christ's name. The authority to bring life and healing 
into the lives of those around us. Those are all, that's all the authority that we have through the Holy Spirit. Such an amazing promise. And then finally, in Ephesians 1 to 14, it says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance uh, through God. So when you buy a car or a house, you put a down payment on it, and that basically says that I'm promising to carry through with that purchase, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow it through until I've purchased it. And that's what the Holy Spirit is in our lives. It, it, it says that I'm going to follow through with that, uh, that God is going to follow through until, um, until we see him again in, in glory. And, um, and so that, that the down payment is a promise that the rest is coming, and there's more yet to come. So the Holy, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is our down payment, our promise of the full inheritance that we have through Christ. So the Holy Spirit is described in a, in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different places in the, in the New Testament. But one of my favorite descriptions of the Spirit is, is from Romans 8. And uh, in Romans 8, it describes the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, the first fruits of the Spirit. And, other, and that's one translation. Other translations say that the Spirit is a foretaste of what we have yet to come. Regardless of what that verse tells us about the Spirit, there's some pretty um, cool things that, that we can learn about that. So one of the offerings that the Jewish people were required to give was an offering of first fruits. When they did their harvest, they would take the best, the plumpest, the most flavorful and juicy of fruits, and they would offer that to God. And God says, that's what the Holy Spirit is in your lives, the best that I have to offer you. A foretaste. If you think about a meal, and you've prepared a meal, and you like Thanksgiving meal, you've, you've smelled it cooking in the oven all day long, and your taste buds are primed and ready to go and ready to eat, and you sit down, and that first mouthful is the most delicious mouthful because you've been waiting for it all day. And then as you eat the rest of the meal, your taste buds kind of become acclimated, and the rest of it still tastes good, but not quite as good as that first taste. And that's what the Holy Spirit is, the taste of the amazingness of what God has in store for us. So what that tells us about the Spirit is that it, it, there's a promise of more that's yet to come. We often think of the Holy Spirit as kind of an appeasement that we have while we're here on earth, enduring the here and now. But the reality is that when God gives us something, he gives us the best. He doesn't give us uh, seconds. He doesn't give us, you know, just an afterthought. He gives us the best. He's given us the best of himself through his word, the truth of his word. He's given us the best through redemption, through his son. He's given us new life. He offers us a relationship with him. And he offers us the Holy Spirit, the best of what we could ask for. What more could we ask for? And yet the Holy Spirit is also a promise that there is more yet to come. We have it good, but there's more better yet to come. And so I, um, I just want to finish with an illustration um, and it's kind of a little, it's a cheesy little story, but I think, I don't usually like using those, but it's, I think it's a really great illustration of the spirit in our lives. And it's about a fork. So there's a woman who was diagnosed with cancer and was given three months to live by her physician. And um, so she decided she was going to start planning for the end of her life and called her pastor so that she could start planning her funeral service, could start planning what she was going to wear and the verses that were going to be read and the hymns that were going to be sung. And so she called her pastor, and the pastor came, and they went over all these things, and he knew exactly what she was going to wear, and the verses that were going to be read, and what, his, what would be highlighted in the, in the talk that he gave. And everything was in order, and when the pastor was just getting ready to leave, the woman said, there's one more thing. You can't forget this thing. It is super important. And uh, she said, you're, you're going to look at me probably a little bit strange when I, when I ask you this, 
but please, you have to do it. So she said, when I'm buried and when I'm in my casket, I want you to take a fork and put it in my right hand so that people can see this fork. And he's like, you're right, that is, that's pretty weird. And she said, well, let me just explain it to you. In, in all of my time going to church, my favorite part of being a part of the family of God was when we got to sit down together and we had social functions and we would eat and we would eat and we would eat. And then when the people came around to clear my plate, I always looked forward to when they would say, keep your fork. And you know why I looked forward to that? Because I knew when they said, keep the fork, that I was getting something good. I wasn't getting pudding. I wasn't getting jello. I wasn't getting something like that. I was getting the most delectable dessert coming, a delicious cake or a, a, an amazing pie. There was something good coming. And, uh, and, and I want you to tell the people when they ask you about the fork that there's something better coming. And so the pastor left with, uh, with teary eyes because he knew that lady had an amazing understanding of the Holy Spirit and of what was coming um, and what was coming for her. And the funeral, at the funeral, people would walk by the woman's casket, and as expected, they would see the dress, and they would say, oh, that looks nice, and, and they would see her Bible and say, she must have been a very um, devout woman. And they would see the fork, and then they would say to the pastor, what on earth is that about? And he would just smile and chuckle. And then as he was giving his eulogy, he would, uh, he would ex he explained to the people what the fork was about and what it symbolized to her. And the pastor told people how three months ago he'd gone to this lady to plan her funeral, and since then he could not forget the significance of the fork. And he said to them, I want you to remember the significance of the fork. Next time you pick up a fork, I want you to remember that there's more coming. There's better coming. We've got it good, but there's more and there's better coming. The Holy Spirit is a little like that fork. He's a reminder that there's more ahead. There's more substance. We've got it good, but there's better things coming. So let me just pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give us. We thank you for your word and uh, for your plan for our lives and that you plan for us to be in relationship with you. We thank you that um, you've paid the full price. Help us to be able to give you authority in our lives, to give over those things that sometimes we hold back so that you can have full authority and we can walk with you in the relationship you planned for us. And thank you for, uh, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in our lives, that you give us so much authority, that you identify us as, as, as children of God and that you're a promise of what is to come. Remind us of those things as we go this week because we ask it in your name. Amen.